My name is Tim Wilson. I'm the director of CSTPV, the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St Andrews. I'm a historian by training and a particular interest in studying divided societies like Northern Ireland. My interest in that derives from personal experience. I spent a large part of the late 1990s involved in voluntary work in North Belfast and much of my academic interests derive from that experience and those years at a particularly turbulent time for Northern Ireland when it seemed poised on the cusp of either peace or renewed violence and looked like it could go either way. We're sitting in St Andrews University in Scotland, in the United Kingdom, quite close to the coast, the third oldest university in the English-speaking world after Oxford and Cambridge. We date back to 1413. In this series, we're going to take a long view of the Northern Irish conflict, how it has developed, where it's come from, what its roots are, and why it is so persistent in the early 21st century. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at the deep roots of the Northern Irish conflict, often associated with the more recent troubles that are conventionally dated from the late 60s through to the late 90s. But to make sense of that, one needs to understand a longer period dating back several hundreds of years. In the 17th century, with the big religious changes that came through the Protestant Reformation, most of what is now the United Kingdom took a different path to Ireland. Ireland stayed Catholic. Most of the United Kingdom became a Protestant country. That is in many ways much of the root of what followed. Ireland became perceived by London governments as a troublesome region, as an area that needed to be controlled. One method that was used was to encourage Protestant settlers from particularly the Scottish lowlands over to the north of Ireland, to Ulster, to try and maintain a firmer grip on that part of the island. One can track a history of religious tensions all the way back to the 17th century, 1641 being a particular flashpoint of violence in an attempt to overthrow the Protestant plantations, a sort of nativist Catholic revolt. But one also needs to realise that history was not predetermined. There was only one Catholic church, but there were several different types of Protestant. They didn't always get on, and other endings might have evolved. Although the deep history going back to the 17th century is vital here, in many ways the pivotal century is the 19th century. In 1800, an act of union cementing Ireland's place within the United Kingdom was passed. It got rid of a Dublin parliament and imposed effectively more direct rule from London. That was a reaction to the turmoil coming out of the French Revolution and a major revolt that had happened in 1798 to overthrow British rule. And in many ways is the origin of modern Ireland, of the modern anglo Irish relationship, and indeed, just over 120 years later of the creation of Northern Ireland. It was a failed experiment in state building, but that took a long time to become apparent. The dilemma at the very start of the 19th century for British governments was to impose tighter control on Ireland in the wake of the French Revolution. It might be necessary in an island with an overwhelming Catholic population to also offer concessions, and many of the British elite in London saw the need for that. It was, however, unfortunately blocked by King George III at the time. It took until 1829 for a major political concession to be passed, so-called Catholic emancipation. What Catholic emancipation meant 
was that Catholics could finally sit in the British House of Commons if they were elected. Daniel O'Connell was the first. He would sit there in the front row of the opposition benches, playing with his rosary beads conspicuously. That left a very bitter taste for most of the population and really meant that the Act of Union of Great Britain and Ireland in the United Kingdom never bedded down as successfully as its Scottish counterpart had done almost a century earlier. Historians debate whether the Union could have been more successful. One needs to factor in the potato famine of 1845 to 49. Ireland's population as a whole island went from about 8 million down to somewhere like 5 million with disease, famine, mass emigration. A million British citizens dying, and yet the whole resources of the United Kingdom were not mobilised to help Ireland. English assumptions that this was a place apart kicked in. Private charity was mobilised on quite an impressive scale, but private charity was not enough. In 1851, when the Great Exhibition opened in London and the United Kingdom showcased its achievements as the leading industrial superpower of the day, it had this predominantly agricultural hinterland in Ireland that was in a very, in many places, devastated state that I think foreshadows many of the troubled developments that were to follow over the next 70 years before the Union was radically restructured and cut back. Moving into the later 19th century... What becomes clearer and clearer is that different parts of the island, economically, socially, are moving in different directions. And that, particularly in the north, the city of Belfast, which grows out of very, very little from the mid-19th century onwards to become one of the United Kingdom's major industrial powerhouses, the place, of course, famously where they built the Titanic in 1911-12, that puts the north of Ireland onto a very different path to the rest of the islands, and it means that it functions as an outpost of the wider British industrial economy. It's part of a triangle with Liverpool and Glasgow, and has less and less in common economically with the rest of the island. Dublin is the old capital, of course, still important for services, but increasingly not an industrial hub, the Guinness Brewery accepted. Views on the constitutional question whether the union is working, whether it's a good thing for Ireland or not, increasingly follows sectarian lines. So, in effectively, a greater Belfast region, what ultimately is to become the core of Northern Ireland, a very different economy and society is developing, where, by and large, Protestants of different types see those differences as less important than the differences with Catholics and Catholics increasingly turn towards a sort of Irish nationalism, a view that they are essentially a different people. Its expression in the late 19th century is equivocal. Only a hardcore adopt violent separatism, the so-called Fenian movement, named after the Fianna, the ancient Gaelic warriors, which, to give it its more formal title of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, is founded in a Dublin timber yard in 1858, and is, of course, the ancestor of the modern IRA and its various splinter groups. That is a minority tradition. It can command some attention. There is an attempt at a rising in 1867 in the middle of a very badly timed snowstorm, but somewhere between nine or 10,000 people turn out outside Dublin to overthrow British rule. They're quickly put to flight. It's fairly clear that a mass uprising against the British state, after all, Britain is approaching its zenith as an imperial power, is not viable. Different factions play with different tactics. Some turn towards constitutional politics. Some go underground, particularly drawing strength from the Irish-American diaspora. 
And that leads in 1883 to 1885 to a dynamite bombing campaign, which in many ways is the first terrorist bombing campaign in history. It's the first time that there's an attempt by militants to oppose a state through a repetitive series of bombings in London and a few other major cities. But most of Irish Catholic opinion from 1870 onwards is mobilised behind the Home Rule movement, an attempt to create a devolved government in Dublin, something similar to what Holyrood now has in Scotland, whilst remaining within the United Kingdom. It was an attempt to say to Irish nationalist opinion, you can have a certain degree of freedom and autonomy. It was an attempt, at least in the eyes of its founder, Isaac Butt, to square that with a renewed place within the British state for the Protestant community. So it was a creative political movement It looks in the late 19th century as if it may well happen. It seems to have momentum behind it. In 1886, the British Prime Minister Gladstone is really the first senior British politician to take Irish nationalist claims seriously and embrace them with, as it turns out, some enthusiasm. 1829, Catholic emancipation had been wrung out of the British state. 1886, home rule with Gladstone's Liberal Party in government becomes official government policy. But it fails, however, to be passed in the House of Commons and precipitates a very major constitutional crisis that is really the birth of the modern Irish question. Of course, with hindsight, we can see that if Home Rule had been passed, it might have led to a very different 20th century. The complete island of Ireland preserved within the United Kingdom, a bit like Scotland today, might have led to an overall more stable arrangement. It might have led to a certain acceptance, perhaps growing acceptance by Irish nationalist opinion of the benefits of economic development and British rule, and to some extent have assaged the searing memory of the famine. The reality is it failed in 1886, it was tried again in 1893 when Gladstone was back in power, and has then put off the agenda until just before World War I. Many do see that as a great lost opportunity, that Gladstone, who didn't know Ireland well, he is meant to have only visited it once or twice, basically stepping off a yacht in Dublin Bay, but he had read a lot about it and he did see more clearly than many that the Union was not working well. A period in the late 19th, very early 20th centuries, 1890s to 1910 period of conservative rule, predominantly, tries to bind Ireland more closely into the Union to kill home rule with kindness. In other words, economic development, the extension of good governance and prosperity to Ireland would, it was hoped, make Irish public opinion more reconciled to continuing membership of the United Kingdom under British rule. We need to remember that at that moment, the Fenian tradition, the old underground IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood tradition of armed insurrection, whether by mass uprising or by something much more like guerrilla warfare or terrorism, looked at a very, very low ebb. As Ireland entered the 20th century, it really looked like the future would be home rule, perhaps in a devolved version. Although the Home Rule project had not worked in 1886 and 1893, there was a strong sense that its time would come and that really much of society in Ireland was preparing 
for a home rule future where Dublin would have a subordinate parliament, Ireland as a whole unit would stay within the United Kingdom, but there would be jobs and opportunities for a sort of rising Catholic middle class, particularly based around Dublin. Now, of course, those in the north of the island, the Protestant community and their leaders, the so-called unionists, those who believed in keeping the union as it was, were deeply unhappy at that prospect. The crunch point then in the creation of the modern Irish question really emerges in 1910. This is a point at which a moment of instability in British politics delivers a weak liberal government that is dependent upon an Irish party for support, a not entirely dissimilar moment to the Tory DUP de facto alliance today. A Liberal Party that has been bruised by home rule controversies before, of course, inherits power. It's very, very clear that the price of that power is keeping the 86 or so Irish nationalist MPs, the Home Rule Party, on board, and that they can't be kept on board unless they are given a firm promise that a Liberal government will commit to passing a Home Rule bill. This then becomes a slow-burning but toxic political crisis whose severity is largely forgotten today, but arguably brings the entire United Kingdom the closest to the brink of a civil war that it has been since 1651 or so. The Conservative opposition thinks that this move to grant the Irish Home Rule Bill does not have the overwhelming support of most of the British public and probably will lead to the dismemberment of the United Kingdom. This is the whole problem with the creative ambiguity of Home Rule, is does it stand for a halfway house towards full independence or does it not? The Tory interpretation is that it does, that once you move towards devolved government, it will inevitably slide towards separatism. So they oppose this root and branch, and they can do so because they have the overwhelming majority of the House of Lords, the senior house in the British Constitution. The Liberal government, of course, know that, and therefore a conflict that is partly about Ireland also goes right to the heart of how the British state and its constitution should work. What eventually comes out of this crisis in 1911 is a bill by the Liberal government that reduces the power of the House of Lords, which is still what we live with today. That the House of Lords can review legislation, they can reject it twice and send it back to the lower house, to the House of Commons, but on the third time they must accept it. Now, this looks like a creative political solution. In terms of its ramifications for the history of British Ireland, it is dynamite because it does two things. It first of all makes sure that this crisis will be slow burning and long running because three legislative sessions now have to take place before a clear resolution of the Irish question is achieved. Secondly, it makes it entirely clear what the final outcome of that crisis will be, which deeply alarms both the Conservatives and their increasingly vocal and agitated Unionist allies in the north of Ireland, particularly the Greater Belfast and beyond area where Protestants are a majority of much of that part of the island. That combination leads pretty instantly to trouble. There is serious rioting in Belfast in 1912, Belfast has a long tradition of rioting that has created the segregated city we know today. There are indeed periodic and serious riots in the second half of the 19th century, in 1857, in 1864, in 1872, in 1886, and then again, as I say, very severely in 1912. The 1912 riots 
are to do with the Protestant working class asserting themselves and interestingly take place over the right to display flags in public, which is going to be a flashpoint issue for the next 100 years and counting. That alarms the unionist leadership under two key figures, Edward Carson and Sir James Craig, who decide that they need to control this potential for trouble more effectively because it's embarrassing when riots happen. But they also know that they need to give a signal to the Protestant working class that their concerns are heard. The device they come up with is called the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force. It's founded in January 1913. It's meant as a safety valve to put the Protestant working class potential rioters under some sort of quasi-paramilitary discipline that can be more tightly controlled for political purposes. In that action is a microcosm of recurrent dilemmas of 20th century Irish politics, which is to control the potential for violent disorder you need often to give it some semi-legitimacy. In doing so, you may gain some control over it, you also entrench it and perpetuate it. The Ulster Volunteer Force begin to organise, to parade, to drill. They begin to practise a theatrical defiance whose ultimate enemy is not absolutely clear. Are they mobilising against the current policy of the British government, the Liberal Party at the time, are they mobilising against their Catholic nationalist neighbours to intimidate them? Are they mobilising against both? And which conflict might break out sooner? The Home Rule Bill, the third Home Rule Bill under the Liberal government of Herbert Asquith, incidentally Prime Minister for this region of East Fife, winds its slow way through the legislative process of being sent up to the Lords, rejected, sent back through 1912, 1913, until by the spring of 1914, Carson and Craig, with their ally in the Tory party, Bona Law, decide that they have to try and break the logjam. They have to make some sort of gesture to signal to the Liberal government that concessions need to be made, that you cannot coerce the entire Protestant community of the north of Ireland into a settlement that they don't wish to accept. Eventually, reluctantly, the Asquith government is forced to make some sort of concession. Their minds are sharpened by two events. First, in the spring of 1914, a major consignment of arms from a dodgy arms dealer in Hamburg is successfully landed in the north of Ireland and the greater Belfast region and distributed throughout the provinces, so that now the UVF has gone from a force possibly 100,000 strong, of playing with wooden rifles to actually playing with real rifles. In fairness, this only turns an unarmed force into a badly armed force. The rifles are of different diameters, they're different ammunitions, a load of them are junk left over from the Zulu Wars. But it does add an extra urgency to the Irish question that the Liberal government can no longer ignore. It also leads to a counter-mobilisation, the so-called Irish National Volunteers, which mobilise in the rest of the island and put together some pretty impressive paramilitary demonstrations from the Irish nationalist majority community. They are much less well-armed, they seem much more amateur, but the important thing for the future is that within their ranks, as a small minority, are various Fenian, old IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood elements. This is the moment just for World War I when one could say the gun is reintroduced into Irish politics with consequences we still see today. The other event that happens in the spring of 1914 is the Cara Mutiny, 
orders to a cavalry regiment in the Curra base just outside Dublin seem to indicate that they're going to be sent north to the Belfast region and they're going to be used to intimidate Unionist opposition to Home Rule, the UVF. But the way the orders are transmitted by their Colonel, Colonel Paget appears to give officers the right to step out of that scheme if they don't want to do it. And over 50 of them do so. So there's a moment where it looks like the British government can't actually rely upon its own army, which seems an extraordinary moment in British modern politics. Arguably, it has only happened twice in the 20th century that British governments have felt they couldn't utterly rely on the loyalty of the army. The first, as I say, is the Curra Mutiny, March 1914. The second is 1974, also over Northern Ireland. Both times it's the Irish question that seems to sharpen up what some elements of the British army may feel is a government policy that is misconceived. Those two events, this slightly theatrical but still impressive and spectacular publicity coup of landing 20,000 rifles and the so-called current mutiny, really weaken the Liberal government's position and they are forced to make concessions. This culminates in a conference, Buckingham Palace Conference of July 1914, where the British government and the leaders of Irish nationalism, a man called John Redmond and Carson, try and thrash out a deal. For the very first time, an idea that's been floating around for a couple of years but not taken very seriously begins to be hardened up. If one can't easily grant home rule to the whole island of Ireland, perhaps one can split the island, perhaps one can partition it, perhaps one can create some sort of border that gives these two opposed political communities something of what they want. So in the spring of 1914, for the Unionists, what they want is continued full membership of the United Kingdom for the whole of Ireland. If they can't get that as a fallback position, the Ulster Unionists, those concentrated in the north, might accept some sort of partition. For the Irish Nationalists, there is a deeply embedded idea that... The island is a God-given unit and it shouldn't be split. They're deeply reluctant to countenance it, but Redmond, under enormous pressure, decides that he probably has to give ground there. And so they do. The shape of the partitioned area, to be determined, is smaller than what becomes the modern Northern Ireland. It's only about four counties around Belfast. And that is how matters rest Liberals and Conservatives can't be invited to the same dinner parties in London. It looks like civil war could kick off at any moment, particularly in the north of Ireland, if through some mistimed police or military move there is confrontation between the UVF and the British forces. At the same time, in many areas, populations being intermixed, the Irish National Volunteers are parading pretty much alongside the Ulster Volunteers, their rivals, the other side. So there's dangers of collision there. The situation on the brink of July-August 1914 looks like the entire United Kingdom is spiralling towards some sort of civil war. Of course, what happens is the United Kingdom is saved from civil war by the outbreak of World War. The outbreak of World War at the very start of August 1914 is a game changer. If you follow the British papers from July 1914, what is striking is how an obscure crisis in the Balkans is mentioned, fades, and only really comes back into sharp focus in the last week of July 1914. It's not clear that that's going to be much more important than Irish difficulties. But as war breaks out, there seems to be a moment of quite extraordinary political rapprochement. 
Liberals and Conservatives sink their difference into the current war effort. Herbert Asquith remains as Prime Minister. There's a rallying around the flag. Also in Ireland, in ways that now seem quite strange, on the Ulster Unionist side, it's perhaps less surprising. They offer support to the British war effort. What is truly striking is John Redmond's decision to lead the Irish Nationalist Party, the Home Rule Party, and the Irish National Volunteers who are associated with the Home Rule Party into support for the British war effort. A speech at Woodenbridge in September 1914, he says that he will support the British war effort as far as the firing line extends, is the phrase. One needs to sort of understand why he does this. The calculation is that if he makes a blood sacrifice of Irish blood on behalf of the British, it will be nearly impossible for a post-war British government not to grant home rule. Perhaps home rule on more generous terms that have just been discussed, perhaps for the whole island. But at any rate, he will have laid to rest a constant unionist accusation that the Irish are disloyal, that you cannot trust them, and show that in a major crisis you can trust them, that they will fight on Britain's side, they should be rewarded for doing so afterwards, and all this predicated on the assumption the war will be short. John Redmond's an experienced politician. He makes what appears to be a good judgment call that, of course, with hindsight, we can see is comprehensively falsified by events. But that only becomes slowly apparent as the war drags on endlessly, as the supply of volunteers from Ireland dry up, and as, crucially, it becomes clear that the war is unpopular in Ireland. It's unpopular for several reasons, one of which is wars are unpopular for farmers everywhere, but particularly in Ireland, and most of Ireland's an agricultural place, and people don't want to send their sons to war. They want to keep them on the farm. War drives up prices. The Irish agricultural economy actually does very well in World War I. Redmond's supply of volunteers begins to dry up. But also, a counter-movement develops from within the Irish national volunteers of this nucleus of old Fenians, of IRB men, Irish Republican Brotherhood men, who had taken part in that movement, didn't like the way it was going in terms of supporting the British war effort, and split from it. They, of course, are really the makers of modern Irish history because out of that movement, now calling themselves the Irish Volunteers, comes plans for an armed rising. An old, old idea that goes back to the Fenians of the 1860s that England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, that in the middle of a major conflict, one should use that opportunity to win full independence. There the debates revolve endlessly around what the Irish Volunteers want to achieve. Do they really think they can win independence in the middle of World War I? Or is it about showing that a tradition of insurrection is not fully dead, because it has looked very dead for decades before? So if we want to understand where the Easter Rising of April 1916 comes from under the leadership of Patrick Pearce, if we want to understand who they are revolting against, we need to understand it's a revolt that is multi-layered. It's a revolt against British rule, of course. But it is also a revolt against home rule orthodoxy, against John Redmond's movement, the home rule movement. Even more surprising than that, it's a revolt against other Irish Republican Brotherhood activists who think the ideas of insurrection are a good idea in general, but this one is hopeless and there is no point in trying it now. 
So it really is, in 21st century language, a very small radicalised minority who take the initiative on Easter Monday morning. They seize, famously, the general post office in the centre of Dublin and a few other strongholds around the city centre. They seem to have a strategy of almost like a coup, trying to hold the centres of British power. Other bits of the rebellion don't really happen as they should because of sympathisers who think the time is wrong and countermand council orders. That has the effect that the Dublin Rising receives all the attention. The British Army eventually get their act together to crush it. They do so with a fair amount of brutality and heavy-handed methods, and then make the mistake of court-martialing and executing the ringleaders. There seems to be a relatively firm consensus amongst historians that it is the executions and not the rising that does such fatal damage to the Home Rule movement. John Redmond's Home Rule movement is increasingly portrayed by hardcore Republicans as corrupt, as having sold its soul to the British Empire, of having sold out Ireland and now supporting repression on the streets of Dublin. As 1916 wears on relentlessly into 1917 and 1918, as trench warfare continues to grind attritionally on, there is a sea change in Irish political opinion. The Home Rule movement looks increasingly jaded, unpopular, corrupt. And a new movement, calling itself Sinn Féin, ourselves alone, borrowing the name of a fringe pre-war party, harnesses the sympathy that has been created by Patrick Pearce's rebellion in the Easter Rising. It's given a further major boost in spring of 1918 when the German army gets within 30 or so miles of Paris, when it looks like World War I is lost to the British. All kinds of panic is breaking out, both on the Western Front and back in London. Because of some grudging awareness of Irish sensitivities, conscription hasn't at this point been extended to Ireland. In the spring of 1918, in conditions of utter desperation, the British government decides that it should be and it's a fatal mistake. It massively radicalises what is left of the Home Rule movement to create a fairly monolithic opposition to British government policy in Northern Ireland. So these two factors, the 1916 uprising, the conscription crisis in 1918, mean that the end of World War I, when it finally comes in November 1918, sees Irish politics and the British-Irish relationship in an entirely different light. The unionist position has strengthened since 1914. A liberal government has become a Tory-dominated coalition government that's then consolidated after World War I. The Home Rule movement largely collapses at the polls in November 1918. A much more radical Republican alternative advocating separation from the United Kingdom has really swept the board across most of Southern Ireland. That is the situation that greets an exhausted British government that then has to grapple with the Irish question once more, the Irish question that it so thankfully parked back in the autumn of 1914 under legislation at that point. Home rule had technically been enacted, but also suspended for the duration of the war. When the Irish question heats up again after World War I, it's a very different geopolitical landscape. 